good morning. Good morning. We have got a really hard text today. So I'm going to work my way into it easy. How does that sound? Oh, boy. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I ran a, a little 5K, the Twin Cities 5K. And it was one of uh, several races that all had the same finish line uh, at, down by the Capitol. Uh, in my race, there were 2,697 people. Not that I was counting or anything uh, about that. But there were also thousands more who were running these other races. There was a 10K. There was a 10-mile. There was a marathon. A lot of our people actually ran a lot of these races. Well, the organizers of this race knew that there were 20,000-plus of us who were all running this, these races and that we would need to pick up our race numbers and our timing chips and our shirts and all this kind of stuff. And so what they did is they rented out the St. Paul River Center, and they got a huge, bank, a huge um, ex- exhibition hall. And so they had this runner's expo. And this runner's expo was unbelievable. You come into the river center, you come to the top of those escalators looking down, and here is this room that looked like it was a block wide and two blocks long, and it was filled with all these booths with awesome running gear and all these great races that were happening all around the country and all these great running clubs. And every three steps, I'm going, that's cool and that's cool. And of course, where do they put our our race packet pickup? at the front where you can really just get in and grab, no, three miles away, you know, at the end of this thing. So you had to cross by all of these great places that were calling for your attention. And I did my best, but I came out of there spending about 30 bucks that I, I didn't plan to spend, but I'm like, you know, it's $30 if we can absorb that. Well, then later in the week, I'm, I'm home and we're watching TV. And this Walgreens commercial comes on, of all things. And I'm watching this Walgreens commercial after walking through this wonderland of running stuff. And I don't remember the details, but it was something like if you bought one vaccination with them, they were going to give a vaccination or something like that to to people who need it. Some of you saw the commercial. And what really struck me is I'm seeing the pictures of the kids. And I'm thinking, you know, for just two bucks or whatever this is, you can vaccinate a kid who might otherwise die if they don't get the vaccination. And so my thoughts went from there to this series that was coming up and that we're in, and I started thinking, why is it that when I was there at that exhibition hall, I wasn't being more conscious about the money? Why was I not stopping to think, okay, of all the things I can spend money on, is this the one I should be spending money? Why wasn't I asking that question is the question that I started to ask myself. And then that thought led to this question. As a Christian, and this is just me talking about myself right now, can I say with integrity that I'm spending money the way Jesus would? Because I should, right? If I'm a Christian, I should be spending the money the way Jesus did. And why am I not more conscious about that? when it comes to my money. Now, I recognize that we have a bunch of new faces here, and I don't know all of you, but just so let's set you at ease so you kind of know where I'm coming from, I'm not going to launch into a rant about the evils of capitalism. Those of you who know me can can laugh because I'm not. In fact, I'll go this far. It is a good and God-honoring thing to work hard and to produce stuff that people want to buy, as long as it's, you know, good stuff and to provide services that people want to buy. Quality goods, quality services, that's a good and God-honoring thing. And it's a good and God-honoring thing to pay people who are producing great goods and great services. 
I would go this far. I would say the plan A to get out of poverty is to offer goods and services and to pay people for offering goods and services in a fair way, right? So I'm not going to go down that path. That's not the issue. The issue that I was wrestling with was an issue of integrity. I want to be a man of integrity. And those of you who I do know, you want to be people of integrity. You know, when we put this series together, this was going to be just the nice little tithing talk part of the series. And I thought I had the message all done on, you know, on Friday. But I believe that there was some conversation that I was supposed to have yesterday with Laura that I had, and, and I believe I was woken up at four this morning, and I'm not done. Um, and one of the not done pieces was this verse out of Proverbs that I felt led to this morning. This is out of Proverbs 23, 26. I had to hand it to the team this morning as I came in like 15 minutes before the service started. Proverbs 23, 26 says this, My son, let your eyes delight in my ways. And one of the reasons this strikes me is because this isn't God. This passage isn't God saying, my son, look at my ways. This is a person saying to his son or to others, let your eyes delight in my ways. And if we're parents, isn't that what we want for our kids? To have that life of integrity where we can say, they know we're not perfect, right? But we're trying to live lives of integrity. We're trying to be who we are. Don't you want this of the people that know you best, your spouse, your friends? Isn't this what we want? Where people could look at us and say, you know, as fallen as I am, as broken as I am, as messed up as I am, I, you know me as a person who's trying to be sincere and, and, and a life of integrity. Isn't that what we all want, right? We, we all want that. And that's the kind of person, that's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people of integrity with nothing to hide, especially from those who know us best. And so... For the next three weeks, we started this last week, but for the next three weeks, including this week, we're going to try to apply this principle of integrity to personal finances as best we can. You know, for those of us who are Christians, how do we do a better job of living with integrity? Of, of just saying, yep, this is a time where I'm consciously going to pay this money for these jeans. These are the right things. But there's also times where I'm not, and I'm going to put the money elsewhere. To just be conscious and to be people of integrity when it comes to our spending. The series that we're in, if you are new, is called Reconciled. And as Christians, we want this to be true of everything, not just money, but at least once a year because the scriptures spend so much time talking about money. We want to apply the principle of integrity to money, but certainly for all areas of our lives. In this series, we're going to ask questions like, what does it mean to be financially reconciled with God? What does God-honoring giving look like or God-honoring saving or God-honoring spending? And we introduced this series last week with um, a story. Brandon took us into a story that Jesus told. It's a powerful story. They call it a parable, a story about this person that goes out and sows all kinds of seeds. And some of these seeds fell among thorns. And that was the, the, the part that we zeroed into last week, the seeds that fell among thorns. Because when the disciples said, Jesus, what are you talking about? He said, the seed that fell among thorns, that's like what happens when we live in a culture or in a situation where the deceitfulness of wealth just springs up and this good seed is, is, is not capable any longer of producing the good fruit that it otherwise could have. So we talked about un, among thorns. And so 
what I encourage you to do now as we press deeper into this lesson is to take out this sheet and write this down. When we live among thorns, which we do, because my experience in the uh, St. Paul River Center was our experience every day, right? Every time you turn on your phone, you've got something beeping at you saying, hey, you need this, you need this, you need this. Every time you turn on the TV, you need this, you need this. And they all sync up their commercials at the same time, which just drives me nuts, right? So you can't run from them. You know, when we live among thorns, as we do, financial integrity requires greater what? intentionality. We have to be more intentional. If we want to live with integrity in this culture, we have to be intentional because the world's going to pull us in all these other ways. Now again, because many of you don't know me, is, do I believe wealth is inherently evil? No. No. It can be a blessing. Wealth is not inherently evil. But here's the image that came to my mind earlier in the week as I was preparing for this lesson. I thought about how a couple years ago we needed to replace our washer and dryer at our house. And I had just cashed in so many chips from so many people to come and help us out with other things. I'm like, I, I got to take this one on myself. And I don't know anything about natural gas. I've never worked with natural gas in my life. But I'm not paying somebody else all that money to come in and do it. And I don't want to cash in another chip. So here we go. Well, I'll tell you something. That project, I was more careful than any other project I'd ever done in my life. I am sniffing until my nose was broken. You know, is there any gas coming out of this thing? I'm like, everything I can do, the bubble or whatever you're supposed to do, I'm getting bubbles on there. Are any bubbles coming out of this thing? Why was I so nervous about that project? Because it could blow up, right? It could blow up in a big way, absolutely. It was an important project. And the image I want to offer to you for your consideration, we should really think of money a lot more like this. Natural gas is not inherently evil, but you got to be very careful with it, don't you? The scripture says the same thing about money. That's why we're talking about this. We're not starting a building campaign. We're not in financial trouble. we got three months of savings in the bank. We're not, this is not about that. This is about being true to the text. It, it's a big deal. Here's one verse out of many, right? 1 Timothy 6.10 that we can point to. The love of money, look what it says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have even wandered from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many sorrows. And when we fail to live this life of complete financial integrity, when we don't put some kind of boundaries and guidelines around this stuff that's coming in and out of our homes, we can open ourselves up to dangers that are even more dangerous, and that is not hyperbole. Why do I say that? I'm going to offer you Exhibit A here in a minute. This passage that I said is really hard, really hard. It's in a section of the Bible called the New Testament. What you're going to look at is going to sound very Old Testament. If you know Old Testament, it's not. It's New Testament. And it's not like the story that Brandon told last week because this isn't a story. This is something that actually happened to people. So this is a true account of true people that happened in the first century. And it's found in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. I've never taught on this before. Ever. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because what do I do with this? You're going to see if you don't, are familiar with this passage. What do you do with this? Is the message tithe or die? You know, what do you do with this passage of Scripture? And so what have I done in the past? I've just ducked it. I've just dodged it. I've joked about it, which is inappropriate, you know, like I just did there. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we can't do that though, can we? We, we can't just pick and choose and take the ones that are easy and leave out the ones that are hard. So let's go to this hard place today. 
Acts chapter 5, starting with verse 1. You know, they say greed appears on the list of seven deadly sins. This is literally the case right here. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. I want to make sure you know that too. At the entrances and the exits, we keep a stack of those Bibles there for you. Please take one as a gift. We also, in your bulletins, should, there should be a, a link to a free, great free resource um, for the, from, uh, that you can have to have the Bible electronically. All right, here we go. <laughs> Let me grab my Bible here too. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Um, let's just start with the first verse. But... A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, that doesn't seem so bad, right? So far, so good. We got a guy named Ananias. We got this woman whose name, when I read it, it was like Sapphira. I was thinking Elvira from that old song, and now I just wrecked it for myself and everybody else. But, but the, you know, it seems pretty innocuous at, at the beginning, but it opens with a word that should be a signal to us. What's the first word? It starts with, but which causes people to giggle, I know, so just get it out. You know, but this word matters. This word matters because it's a contrast, isn't it? This word is a contrast. It says there was stuff going on before, and now there's going to be something happening, and that something that's about to happen is different than the stuff that happened before. So here's a quick summary. If you're not familiar with the first four chapters of Acts, here's a summary of what comes before that word that makes people giggle. It's this, Jesus had recently risen from the dead. He had conquered sin and the death and the grave, and he had defeated Satan. Remember that. He had specifically defeated Satan. He was redeeming God's people. And as Jesus promised, remember this also, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church. And united by the Spirit, there was a new community that was being formed. People were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Awe, it said, had come upon every soul as signs and wonders were taking place. Many were even selling their possessions and belonging and giving those to those who were in need. And the Christians, they were taking bold stands. I'd encourage you to read it. And they were praying what I call brave heart prayers. They were just going crazy. And they were experiencing the scriptures being fulfilled in their day. And right before 5.1, right before the word that makes people laugh, was this, Joseph, it says in Acts 4, 36 through 37, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is what comes before the word but. And as we start teaching, I want to give you a thesis there's a lot of things I don't understand about this passage that we're going to look at here, or that we're looking at. But here's a thesis I want to offer to you, and there's a place to write this in your notes. Here's my thesis. There appears to be a link between dramatic evidence of God's presence and the authentic pursuit of his righteousness. Can I get an amen with my thesis yet? I can from some of you. Good, good. Because I see, think this is in the scripture. I also think it fits my personal experience. There appears to be a link between dramatic evidence of God's presence and the authentic pursuit of his righteousness. There appear to be different seasons in the scriptures. Is God always present? Yes. Is God always at work? Yes. Are there seasons where he is doing things that are dramatic? Yeah, there are. There are. And often during those times when God is moving in that kind of way, there is a corresponding awestruck fear and reverence 
along with a heartfelt repentance among his people. And I know many of you, so I know you've probably been in those rooms when the presence of God falls in such a way you can feel it and not just see it. And what happens usually? There's a getting very real with God right away, isn't there? You know, they, when you hear words like revival, and it's an authentic revival, not a drummed-up, coerced, manipulative thing. When there's a real revival, it's almost always, I'm going to say preceded, but it's not quite that simple because a lot of times it happens as the revival falls. There's a repentance that happens widespread. No one has to say repent. They, people just, God, I'm sorry, and they come to him, and they want to have their lives filled with integrity, and they want to walk with the Spirit of God towards Christ-likeness. I've been in rooms where you just, I've seen people and myself just, you just want to fall before God on your knees or, or, or even on your face. Well, the account that we're looking at today takes place during this season where God is working like that in this powerful way. And the word but signals to the reader, they're about to see a stark contrast now. There was this and now there's that. So let's go back to the that. And let's start with verse 1 again, but let's move on all the way to verse 2. But a man named Ananias and his wife, whose name rhymes with Elvira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is loaded. I had no idea how loaded it was because I've always steered away from it. Let's add a verse from chapter 4, and this will give it a little bit more context here, okay? So let's put up, and let's leave this on the screen for a while, Acts 4.32, which comes pretty close before Acts 5.1-2. Acts 4.32 says this, as kind of a summary statement. Now, the full number of those who believed were of, say it with me, one heart and soul. Then we jump to verse 5, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back. And now I've added the Greek transliteration of the word that is translated with kept back. And I also put some Bible verses there because if I'm understanding this correctly, these are the only three places in the entire New Testament where this word shows up. Two of them are in Acts. 5, 3, 5, 2. It's a very rare word. And again, please leave this up on the screens because we're going to talk about this here for a little bit. Now, God again was moving in a powerful way as he was establishing his church, so much so that followers of Jesus Christ were of one heart and soul. Now, does it say they were perfect? No. In fact, continue to read in the book of Acts, and they had all kinds of problems and all kinds of conflicts and all kinds of things were going on. But even in their failures, especially right here, especially right at this hinge point, even in their failures, there was an integrity that as they were confronted with things, they responded in repentance. They responded in, oh, I'm sorry. They responded in turning to God. They weren't perfect, but they were living very purposeful lives. They were of one heart and soul. They were all in. They were holding nothing back. In fact, the brave heart prayers were basically, God, thank you for letting me be punished and beat up and everything like that because you might get glory out of this. You know, help us to proclaim the word boldly no matter what happens. Just awesome prayers. They were all in, holding nothing back. And when they were confronted or convicted, they confessed. They didn't pretend to be somebody that they weren't. There was no pretension. They weren't trying to act like they had their act together in Acts, at least not in the beginning. Now, in contrast, 
In contrast, you've got Ananias and Sapphira, and there is great irony here that's easy to miss. Jesus himself said, in marriage, a man and a woman become what? We become one. We become one. And in that same passage, Matthew 19, Jesus also references the book of Genesis, where Eve is referred to in Hebrew as Adam's Ezer. Well, an Ezer is a helper who helps the person in something they're lacking, okay? So start to put all that together. And who then should be more united than a Christian married couple? We should be one. We should be helping one another. We should have this great built-in check and balance, right? Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they're united, they're united, one heart and soul, but it's an unholy union, and it's even worse than that. You see that Greek word that I've been highlighting? I'm not going to pretend that I can pronounce Greek. I'm just going to say it, and then all the people who listen online and make fun of me can, <laughs> can let me have it, right? Nephizo. We're going to pretend it's nephizo, all right? Um, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, how much I don't know Greek. Um, if you're engaged in nephizoing, in this uncommon word, you are holding back in a deceptive or dishonest way. You're stealing or you're pilfering or you're embezzling. And here's where this gets really interesting. If you have your Bibles with you, now I'd encourage you to do this. Bookmark Acts 5 and turn to Joshua 7. And Joshua 7 is Old Testament. And you might be thinking, why would we look in the Old Testament if we're talking about Greek? Because the Old Testament was written in what? Hebrew. The reason we're doing this is because there was an ancient collection of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. It was written in Greek. It was looked at as th so authoritative that there are Greek or there are New Testament authors who quoted not from the Hebrew scriptures, they quoted from the Greek translation. So this Septuagint was looked at as authoritative. It was looked at as inspired. Guess where this word shows up? It shows up in Joshua 7. And the parallels in Joshua 7 are striking to the parallels that we see here in, in Acts. This rare word, nephizo, or however you pronounce it, shows up in the Septuagint in Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, there's a man named Achan. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he nephizos too. In the opening chapters of the book of Joshua, God is moving in a dramatic way, in a manner that is echoed in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. The people of God here are entering into the promised land, the Jordan River Hearts. The walls of Jericho come crashing down. And then we read this, Joshua 7, verse 1. But, already sounds a lot alike, doesn't it? But, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, which, wait, Achan, he's one guy. How did the people break faith? There's a relationship, community in one. The people of Israel broke faith and regarded the devoted things. For Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. God was manifesting himself among his people in a dramatic way in Joshua 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. But Achan saw some things that he wanted to keep for himself, things that were specifically devoted to God. 
And Achan was deceived by mammon and attempted to deceive God and God's people by no fizzling them. And as a result, the whole community suffered a big setback. Achan's sin was supernaturally revealed and his subsequent death served as a warning to the entire assembly. Keep that in mind now as we flip back to the account that we were just looking at. So here we go. Back to the book of Acts. We're all the way up to verse 3. But Peter said, and this is Peter the disciple, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back, there's that word again, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man. You've lied to who? To God. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple things here. The first is really subtle. I missed it. I just had spent a lot of time in this text today, reading, or in this, this week, reading commentaries and, and everything. Here's one of the things they pointed out. How many of you have ever heard of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? Did you catch the very subtle Trinity nod here? I had missed it. This is, this is good. Who did Ananias lie to? Well, it says, why has Satan filled your heart? As to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. Who did he lie to? The Holy Spirit. Well, what does it say at the end? You've not lied to man, but you've lied to who? To God. The, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that subtle nod is very much related to what is going on here, the bigger picture. Jesus prayed that we, his people, when the Holy Spirit came on us, we would be what? We would be one, even as he and God were one. The Son and the Father were one. And as the people of God are becoming one heart and soul in chapters 1 through 4, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, who's filling Ananias' heart? Satan. And look at how even the language is being used there. Filling, filling, heart, heart. God's people, Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. In the same Bible, we read that God is a God of integrity. He cannot lie. So, in contrast to the Holy Trinity, there is an unholy alliance forming between Ananias, Sapphira, and Satan as they attempt to lie to the same Holy Spirit who is fueling the very movement that they claim to be a part of. And it's all happening as the devil leverages the deceitfulness of wealth to deceive a man and his wife. And the consequences of their deception are very much in line with what happened to Achan and his family. Let's read the rest of this account, verses 5 through 11. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
the young men came in and they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What do you do with a passage like that? You see why we duck it, right? Or how people use this passage to go to all kinds of unhealthy places? Well, a man named N.T. Wright, a scholar, he did a really good job with it. Um, here's a quote that I would encourage you. The reason I printed this out is because I'm going to read it pretty fast, but this is a quote that deserves to go back and to read slowly and reflectively because he does, an, I think, an exceptional job of summarizing this passage, at least as best as it can be summarized. Here's an excerpt, a smaller portion of the quote that's printed in the back of your notes. We don't like passages like Acts 5, but we can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want a community like this, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear there is no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all the wrongs and sort out all the lying and cheating, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. God is not mocked. We either choose to live in the presence of the God who made the world and who longs for it to be set right, or we lapse back into some variety of easygoing paganism, even if it has a Christian veneer to it. Holiness, in other words, is not optional. And I have, I have a place you can write that in your notes because I just want to hit pause on that quote. That's worth writing down. Holiness is not an optional extra. Can I get an Amen. Holiness is not an optional extra. Let's go back to the quote. How God chooses to make that point in the last analysis is up to him since he's the only one who knows the human heart. But the earliest Christians were quite clear to name the name of Jesus and to invoke the Holy Spirit is to claim to be the temple of the living God and that is bound to have some consequences. Boy, how God chooses to make that point is up to him. And I don't fully understand why Moses, for striking a rock, was kept out of the promised land that Achan got to go into. I can have people explain it to me, but I fully don't get it here, right? I don't get why Peter could sit there after having denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal how he could pronounce a death sentence on a man and his wife for holding back on their offering. I don't fully get that here. But here's what I do get. I get this. I get that God is God. I get that sin is serious. And I get that grace is amazing. Those are the things that I get. I get that God is God. I get that sin is serious. And I get that grace is amazing. And I also have the thesis that I gave you earlier. That thesis that one of the things that's happening in this context, that if you, put, if you took Acts 5 and tried to put it somewhere else, it will look wrong because that's not what God was doing in that moment there. But where it fits 
it appears to be in line with other moments in history. Joshua 7, Moses striking a rock. That there seems to be this link, this link between radical obedience and these demonstrative acts and movements of God. And in this situation, God's people were being called to serve as the temples of his Holy Spirit, as a people, as a movement for the first time. In fact, let me show you something right here. Um, can we go to Acts chapter 5, verse 11? We've read this before, but let me show you what the Greek does here. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church. And the word, the Greek word that's translated as church here is ekklesia. Ekklesia was just a word that meant assembly in Greek. It didn't mean church. It was an assembly. In fact, it was a secular word. This is the first time this word shows up in the book of Acts, right here in this account. God was establishing his church, and this assembly was meant to be different than any other assembly on the planet. You can maybe lie and cheat in other assemblies, not in this assembly. We are called to treat one another differently. We're called to reach out to the world differently. We're called to care for the poor differently. We're called to treat money and possessions differently. And we're called to live with complete integrity. It doesn't require perfection, but it does require us living with purpose. And in that moment, as God was establishing those things, he saw it fit to say, this unholy alliance ends right now. As a Christian, though, we can look at that and we can get really worked up and really scared or we can look at that and go, wow, in many ways the pressure is actually off for us because this was really about deception. It was about a false image. It was about presenting something about yourself that wasn't true. And you look at the broken people that were drawn to the church, right? Sins that we would say were much worse than, than that. But when you come with authenticity and you come with your brokenness, and you come and pursue the purposes of God. What a beautiful thing. We don't have to be perfect, and that's the next thing in your notes here. We don't have to because Jesus of Nazareth lived that life of perfect integrity. Jesus lived that life of perfect integrity, so we don't have to. Does anyone remember that what tribe Achan was from? I said it at least twice to prime the pump. From the tribe of Judah. Who else was from the tribe of Judah? Jesus of Nazareth. And where Achan failed, where Ananias and Sapphira failed. Where you and I failed, Jesus passed the test, every one of them, including the financial test. Why do I say that? Same person that wrote the book of Acts also wrote the book of Luke. And he records this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was tempted by the devil. He wasn't full of the devil and reminded by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, tempted by the devil. The devil takes him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all of it not just some hidden wealth, not just some stuff that you can hold back. All of it says you can have all this. All you got to do is worship me. Jesus passed that test. Passed it. The ones that we fail. And because of that, all who turn from their sin and turn to him can enter the kingdom that he left on our behalf, which leads us to these closing invitations. Do you want more of what Jesus had? I do. I want to go into those exhibition halls and I want to be able to, to be able to buy something that someone worked really hard on but not to feel guilty about it because I felt led by the Spirit. Hey, this, this is okay. Buy this. Reward that person who made this really cool thing. And I want to be led by the Spirit to say, you know what? Hold back on that extra thing that you were going to buy because that money really should go 
to this kid who needs the shot. To be led by the Spirit as Jesus was filled by the Spirit. I want more of that. And Jesus says we can have more of that. He said those who ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit can receive it. But we ask with sincerity. We ask not so that we can have stuff that's just going to make what we think our life is better, but we ask for that gift of the Holy Spirit so it can make us more like Christ and make us more at home at the kingdom that we're going to live at in eternity where God is king. So I, that question I put before you, do you want more of what Jesus had? And then I ask you this question, do we, as God's people, want more of what the disciples had? And that brings back to the thesis. Do we want to be, as a people, to a place where we are inviting God's presence, not just with lip service with songs and not just with lip service and messages or filling in blanks, but we really are. We are coming as God's people and we're like, God, we want to be different in all the right ways. We together want to encourage each other and spur one another on towards Christ-likeness. Let's go back really quickly. Acts 5, 11 said this, great fear came upon the whole church. Great fear came upon the whole church. That can be a great thing. Look at what happens after this this section that was started with a but, when they get back to where they were, when they're through with this, look what happens, picking up right with verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, men and women. People were gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. That great fear, you can write this down, is a great, can be a great thing. Because it can lead to this. The, great, the fear of the Lord is, is not something that's supposed to lead to anxiety. It's not supposed to lead to panic or dread because we're afraid we're going to be found out. It's meant to be this awe and this reverence. You really are God. We're not playing church because we couldn't just do what just happened there. I'm not that good of a speaker. We got a great band. We're, it's not because of the band, the speakers, the kids' ministry, the teen ministry. It's because God is moving in our midst. We can't fake it. And people are seeing it. We're experiencing it. This, the people are sending. They're looking at us different in a good way. Wow. Isn't that what we want? Well, here's an opportunity. I don't think the timing of this is coincidental. This week, um, I got, uh, was talking with Nate Nate wasn't, was prompted. I'm glad you're here. I didn't know you were in this, this service. Um, Nate felt prompted on a business trip. Um, he said, do you know Dot Church is a thing? Dot Church is now a thing. And he said, have you guys looked into Emmanuel.Church? And his company does this kind of thing as far as, among other things. And he said, I'd, we'd be willing to, to look and see if we can work with the people that own that domain to see if our church could get this. When I let that sink in a little bit, no hyperbole here, I literally was on my knees. Think about the gravity of that. If God were to trust us with that. You know, I started thinking how much a step in the right direction it would be for us to have less, we're ECC, much more, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And what if we went after that with all our heart? And we just said, God, what does it mean to be God with us? How do we honor you? How, do we, how does it become less of us, more of you, and not in a cliche? What does it mean for all of us to be all in? Money is like that much of it. Wouldn't that be amazing if God would trust us in that way? What an awesome responsibility. And so let's, let's pray to that end as we close here today. Father, um, we...
fully confess um, that the name that you gave our church is a place where we are not yet, there's not a person in this room as mature as they are in their faith that deserves that name. And certainly us as a full group here, um, boy, for you to entrust that name, uh, just the name Emmanuel, Covenant Church to us, is something that should be filled with great fear um, in a good way. Lord, may this dot church, whether it comes to pass or not, may even the thought of this bring us to a place where we come to you all in, holding nothing back, and we just ask God, will you show us what it means to fully be your follower, to not have any pretension of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather coming to you in humility and seeking fully the life that you would have for us as individuals and as a church. And we ask that you would do that. Fill us with your spirit. Protect us from the lies of the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen.